What would be referred to as the Harlem Renaissance arose largely as a result of the treatment black Americans received since their arrival in slave ships. Extreme poverty, racism, segregation, and institutional violence was still being inflicted on blacks in nearly every American city and state in the early 1900s. The southern states in particular were the worst and many black southerners uprooted their lives to head north because of the Ku Klux Klan. In what would be called the Great Migration, millions of black Americans gathered their families, packed their belongings, and headed to the industrialized cities of the North, in particular for this episode, New York City, where the hope of a life of freedom, prosperity, and opportunity was rumored to exist. Now, in the first novel about the lives of blacks in New York City, The Sports of the Gods, published in 1902 and written by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, whose own parents had been slaves, it reads, They had heard of New York as a place vague and far away, a city that, like heaven, to them existed by faith alone. All the days of their lives they had heard about it, and it seemed to them the center of all the glory, all the wealthy, and all the freedom of the world. A word of mouth about the nirvana that was New York City had become greatly exaggerated and, like many European immigrants arriving to Ellis Island around the same time, the rumors that the streets in New York City were paved with gold also reached the ears of the black population. The harsh reality was far from it and was most likely a disappointment to many. However, unlike the South, Harlem, New York had many black-owned shops and restaurants and businesses which gave opportunities to black professionals, including lawyers, doctors, nurses, teachers, and, of course, writers. From the arts, a renaissance unlike anything witnessed prior would emerge. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, freedom, and growth. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin. Join us as we delve into some of the writings and writers that proved crucial to Black American culture and gave rise to the Harlem Renaissance. There is no secret to success except hard work and getting something indefinable which we call the breaks. In order for a writer to succeed, I suggest three things. Read and write and wait. Words from County Cullen. It was in late 1910 that the first stage of the Harlem Renaissance appeared. It began slowly with the trickle of black American culture appearing here and there, most notably the magazine The Crisis, which you can hear more about on episode 76 of House of Words. Seven years later in 1917, three distinct plays written for the Negro theater took place, namely Granny Maumee, the Rider of Dreams, and Simon the Cyrenian. Although written by a white man, playwright Ridgely Torrance, it rejected the stereotypes of blackface and minstrel show traditions prominent at the time, and instead featured black American actors conveying complex emotions and yearnings. 
Writer and civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson called the premieres of these plays the most important single event in the entire history of the Negro in American theater. That same year, Hubert Harrison, the father of Harlem radicalism, founded the Liberty League and The Voice, the first organization and the first newspaper, respectively, of what was called the New Negro Movement. Harrison's organization and newspaper were political, but also emphasized the arts, which were growing ever stronger. Jamaican-born American poet Claude McKay had already established himself as a poet to be reckoned with by introducing a dramatically political dimension to the themes of African cultural inheritance and the modern urban experience, particularly featured in his 1917 poems Invocation and Harlem Dancer. A landmark moment would arrive in 1919 when the July issue of the magazine The Liberator published McKay's poem, If We Must Die. If we must die, let it be not like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Published under the pseudonym Eli Edwards, after being advised to hide his Jamaican inheritance, If We Must Die was written in response to mob attacks by white Americans upon black American communities during the Red Summer. A red summer being the period in mid-1919 during which white supremacist terrorism and racial riots occurred in more than three dozen cities across the United States and in one rural county in Arkansas. The term red summer was coined by the aforementioned James Weldon Johnson, who also organized a peaceful protest against the racial violence that same year. Although the poem never specifically pointed to race, Black American readers took it as defiance in the face of racism and the nationwide race riots and lynchings taking place around the U.S. Another poem that made an impact, though in a very different way, was County Cullen's poem, Heritage, which expresses the inner struggle of a black American between his past African heritage and the new Christian culture. County Cullen was born County Leroy Porter on May 30, 1903, to a single mother. Although he claimed to have been born in New York City, he also referred to Louisville, Kentucky as his birthplace in legal applications. Nevertheless, at age nine, he was brought to Harlem, New York, by Amanda Porter, who is believed to be his paternal grandmother and who cared for him until her death in 1917. After the death of his grandmother, when he was just 15, he would change his name after being unofficially adopted by Reverend Frederick A. Cullen. 
After graduating from high school, County attended New York University, and in 1923, he won the second prize in the Winner Benner National Competitions of Undergraduate Poetry, sponsored by the Poetry Society of America for his book of poems titled The Ballad of the Brown Girl. The release of the book gave way to publishing poetry in national periodicals such as Harper's, The Crisis, Opportunity, The Bookman, and Poetry, earning him a national reputation. His success would continue, again landing the second prize in 1924 and afterwards taking home the first prize in 1925. Subsequently, he competed in a poetry contest sponsored by Opportunity magazine, landing yet another second prize with To One Who Say Me Nay. FYI, it was Langston Hughes who edged him out for the first spot with his submission, The Weary Blues. 1925 was also the year that County entered Harvard to pursue a master's in English and published Color, his first collection of poems, which later became a landmark of the Harlem Renaissance. Written in a careful, traditional style, the work celebrated black beauty and deplored the effects of racism. The volume included great poems such as Heritage and Yet Do I Marvel and Incident. Like all the great poets of the time, his words reflected the black American experience of the time. Here's an excerpt from Incident. Once riding in old Baltimore, heart filled, head filled with glee, I saw a Baltimorean keep looking straight at me. Now I was eight and very small, and he was no whit bigger, and so I smiled, but he poked out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore, from May until December, of all the things that happened there. That's all that I remember. Now here's a somewhat peculiar fact about County Cullen. He was married to the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois, Yolanda Du Bois. And Papa Du Bois held County in high regards and was quite happy about the Union. This despite no longer having any enthusiasm regarding the trajectory of the Harlem Renaissance. Unfortunately, however, for the couple and dear old dad, the relationship would not last long, ending in divorce within two years. First published in 1921 in The Crisis, the official magazine of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, Langston Hughes would become one of the most prominent black American voices in the U.S. The Negro Speaks of Rivers became his signature poem and was collected in his first book of poetry, The Weary Blues, from 1926. Now you can hear more about Langston Hughes and The Negro Speaks of Rivers on episode 17 of House of Words, where we take a deeper look into three of his most iconic poems. Like many poets of the Harlem Renaissance, Langston was also inspired to tie in threads of black American culture into his poems. As a result, jazz poetry was heavily developed during this time, The Weary Blues being a notable example of a jazz poem. Now, his first and last published poems appeared in The Crisis, and as a matter of fact, more of his poems were published in The Crisis than in any other journal. His work was profoundly influential during the height of the Harlem Renaissance, alongside those of his contemporaries. 
Having different goals and aspirations than the black middle class, he and his fellows tried to depict the lowlife in their art, that is, the real lives of black people in the lower social economic strata. They criticized the divisions and prejudices within the black community based on skin color. For instance, in 1926, Hughes wrote what would be considered their manifesto, The Negro Artist and The Racial Mountain, published in The Nation that same year. In the essay, he wrote, The younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful. And ugly, too. The tom-tom cries and the tom-tom laughs. If colored people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, their displeasure doesn't matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how, and we stand on top of the mountain free within ourselves. On displaying a more critical view of the Harlem Renaissance, or perhaps a more reflective insight, in 1927, Hubert Harrison challenged the notion of the Renaissance in the Pittsburgh Courier. He argued that the Negro literary Renaissance notion overlooked the stream of literary and artistic products which had flowed uninterruptedly from Negro writers from 1850 to the present. Furthermore, he made the claim that the so-called Renaissance was largely a white invention. Nevertheless, with the Harlem Renaissance came a sense of acceptance for black American writers. As Langston Hughes put it, with the Renaissance came the courage to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. Philosopher and writer Alan Locke's anthology, The New Negro, was considered the cornerstone of the Cultural Revolution as the anthology featured several black American writers and poets, such as Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, Anne Spence, and our next person of interest, Zora Neale Hurston. Now, as I just said, we take a look at Zora Neale Hurston, born January 7, 1891, in Eatonville, Florida. And what made Eatonville unique was that it was one of the first towns in the United States founded by black citizens. A town where Zora's father was a minister and also served three terms as Eatonville's mayor. Zora attended the town school, where she got the chance, among other things, to study the teachings of Booker T. Washington, teachings which clashed with W.E.B. Du Bois, some information of which we covered in our 76th episode. And Booker T's philosophy that education, hard work, and perseverance could improve the lives of black Americans profoundly influenced her. After the death of her mother in 1904, her father remarried and Zora was sent to live with relatives. Fast forward to 1916, frustrated by her situation at the time, she took a job as a maid for a musical theater troupe traveling the country with the troupe. In this job, she was able to learn about the theater and continued her studies by borrowing books from the performers. After 18 months of life on the road, she quit the job deciding to finish high school in Baltimore. She then enrolled at Howard University, one of the most famous and prestigious black colleges in the country. Zora was an active participant in campus life and helped publish the inaugural issue of the school newspaper in 1924. 
She also joined the Howard Literary Club, where her first two short stories were published in the club's magazine, The Stylus. A year later, 1925, she arrived in New York City right at the time when the Harlem Renaissance was at its zenith and soon became one of the writers at the center of the storm. Her big break came when her short story, Spunk, originally published in Opportunity magazine, was selected for The New Negro, a landmark anthology of fiction, poetry, and essays focusing on African and Black American art and literature. Then, in 1926, just on the heels of her rise, a group of young black writers, including Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Wallace Thurman, calling themselves the Niggerati, produced a literary magazine called Fire that featured many of the young artists and writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Fire was created by the group to express the black American experience during the Harlem Renaissance in what they viewed as a modern and realistic fashion, using the literature as a vehicle of enlightenment. They wanted to express the changing attitudes of younger black Americans, and unlike other publications that focused primarily on injustice, Fire explored more controversial issues in the black community, such as homosexuality bisexuality, interracial relationships, promiscuity, prostitution, as well as color prejudice. Now concerning the name, Langston Hughes wrote that the name was intended to symbolize their goal to burn up a lot of the old, dead, conventional Negro white ideas of the past into a realization of the existence of the younger Negro writers and artists and provide us with an outlet for publication not available in the limited pages of the small Negro magazines then existing. This goal would be far from an easy task to accomplish. The magazine was inundated by debt and encountered poor sales as a result of not being well received by the black public. Many felt that the topics they covered did not represent the sophisticated self-image of blacks in Harlem. It did not help that it was denounced by black leaders such as the Talented Tenth, who viewed the effort as decadent and vulgar. They disapproved of content relating to prostitution and homosexuality, which they considered degrading to the race. They also thought many pieces published were a throwback to old stereotypes as they were written in the slang and language of the Southern vernacular. Furthermore, they felt the undignified contents reflected poorly on the black race. There was even one critic at the Baltimore Afro-American who went so far as to write that he, and I quote, tossed the first issue of fire into the fire. Wallace Thurman had solicited art, poetry, fiction, drama, and essays from his editorial advisors, as well as from such leading figures of the new Negro movement as County Cullen and Arna Bonton. Although the senior rank of intellectuals such as W.E.B. Du Bois dismissed the whole endeavor as a self-indulgent exercise, it wasn't all negative in the younger circles of black American thinkers. Ultimately, the potential of what the magazine could have grown into was permanently stilted when its headquarters burned to the ground shortly after it published its first issue, effectively ending the journey before it even got started. 
On the other hand, the literary journal The Bookman applauded Fire for its unique qualities and personality, writing that although the magazine had only one issue, and I quote, the single issue of Fire is considered an event of historical importance. Ah, some good news after all. Black Americans were questioning more aspects of their lives, now going as deep as the topic of spirituality and, more importantly, taught spirituality. A religion which had been a somewhat unmovable structure in the earlier years was put up to the light and critiqued during the Harlem Renaissance in music, literature, and theater. The Renaissance encouraged analytic dialogue that included the open critique and adjustment of current religious ideas. And one of the major contributors to the discussion of Black American Renaissance culture was Aaron Douglas, who, with his artwork, also reflected the revisions Black Americans were making to the Christian dogma. Douglas used biblical imagery as inspiration to various pieces of his artwork, however, with the rebellious twist of an African influence. A more severe criticism of the Christian religion can be found in Langston Hughes's poem, Merry Christmas, where he exposes the irony of religion as a symbol for good and yet a force for oppression and injustice. <laughs> Whole lot of irony wrapped up in that statement, for sure. Well, anyway, in the poem, he uses irony to reveal global issues of starvation, murder, rape, and poverty by stating what Christmas is supposed to stand for, you know, peace, righteousness, giving, while in the same piece contrasting the Christmas ideal with global sin. For instance, peace on earth is contrasted with the image of guns and the distribution of weapons. He furthers the use of irony with his portrayal of Christianity. Case in point, Christmas is known as the celebration of the birth of Jesus, with the Advent season being the time of preparing for the celebration of his nativity. Now, what emphasizes the irony is the idea that the spread of Christianity and, in turn, Christmas had a hand in causing problems in the world. From problems of robbery in Haiti to the imprisonment of Gandhi, the irony of his poem is used to highlight both international and domestic political, economic, and moral issues. We encourage you, seek it out, give it a read. Merry Christmas by Langston Hughes. In the end, whether you decide you like it or not, it's worth the read. Well, the end of Harlem's creative boom began with the stock market crash of 1929 and the introduction of the Great Depression. It wavered until Prohibition ended in 1933, which meant white patrons no longer sought out illegal alcohol in uptown clubs. Furthermore, by 1935, many pivotal Harlem residents had moved on to seek work elsewhere. The final left hook that knocked the movement off its feet was the Harlem Race Riot of 1935, which broke out following the arrest of a young shoplifter resulting in three dead, hundreds injured, and millions of dollars in property damage. What was left in the aftermath of the Harlem Renaissance was amazing pieces of art, fresh talents with new and necessary voices, and several thousand newly inspired souls. As usual, let's end this episode with a quote this one from none other than Zora Neale Hurston. 
I have known the joy and pain of friendship. I have served and been served. I have made some good enemies for which I am not a bit sorry. I have loved unselfishly, and I have fondled hatred with the red-hot tongs of hell. That's living. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Lemore Hardin. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Hardin. 